I want to tell you this morning a story from the book of Jonah. And I'm excited about telling you this story um, because it, it's, it's, it's one of those themes in the Gospels that is immediate. And much of the great stuff that's happened in the history of the church and in our own generation is where there's been a message of immediacy. Billy Graham said, you need to be saved and you can be saved now. Make a decision now. Some of you attend Billy Graham crusades in the years past, you know it was a decision now. Dr. King talked about the fierce urgency of now, and it moved a movement forward. Other ministers of the gospel, other people spoke about the urgency of now. And so when the gospel is preached in such a way that people respond to it immediately, they can see deliverance, they can see salvation, they can see change right away. And so that's where I'm heading this morning. What I'm going to be talking about may sound dark for a few moments, uh, but just hang in there with me and we'll eventually get to the point where I think you will see uh, that there can be change in our lives. But first, since we're family, I want to tell a couple of stories. And I've probably told these stories before, but since you're family, I get to repeat my stories as much as I want to. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You do the same thing. Your children roll their eyes, babble off and say, yeah, I heard that one. Stop and move on. And so let me embed a couple of images in your mind, and if you've heard these before, just remember that I'm part of the family, and I get to do this. I might do it again in your house before it's all over with, okay? Years ago, I was on the staff of a university, and I got, a, I got an urgent message, an urgent page on my pager uh, that said, go to a certain facility. I walked into the athletic facility at this university, and what met me was a scene of chaos. As soon as I stepped into the room, there was a man who literally kind of climbed up on me physically, and he said, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to sue your mother, and I'm going to sue this university. I wasn't sure what my sweet mother had to do with it, but okay, we're <laughs> game on. He kept yelling that in my ear. To my left, as I walked in the door, was a woman who kept going like this, wailing like someone had died. I'm, I'm, you know, I just spent a lot of time in the Middle East, so I've heard this at times. You know, you, that Middle Eastern kind of wailing, just loud, wailing. I couldn't even talk to her. She was just caught up in what she was doing. I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. This guy wanted to kill me, sue me, whatever, kill me, get my mother into some situation. This woman, so I finally looked beyond them and I saw a little boy. And the little boy was stuck inside, uh, his arm was stuck inside of a candy machine. There was blood going down his arm. He was wailing as loud as any five-year-old can wail. You know what I'm talking about, just wailing. Utter chaos. A security guy came, but at that university, security wasn't allowed to work with the public at that particular kind of security. So he looked at me like, you got it, big boy. And he walked off. We got the paramedics to come take care of the boy. Eventually, they were on their way anyway. I'm trying to calm the father down and tell him, well, you can talk to the you know, university legal department if you want to sue us. I don't know what else to tell you. I just left her alone. And, and then uh, <laughs> didn't know what to do with her. And, and so, so that, but while, while I was standing there, it struck me that candy machines don't walk down the street and gobble up little boys. So I walked over to Timmy. His name was Timmy. I saw the blood. I heard him screaming. I started to try to get my arm up inside, my hand up there, see what was going on, what was happening. I felt around as much as I could with my big ham hand up in there. Up in there. And finally it hit me what was going on. And I said, son, let go of the candy bar. And his arm came right out. He had a death grip on a baby Ruth. 
That, and he had grabbed that thing and he was not letting go. And that was causing all the commotion. Everybody thought he was stuck in the machine. In fact, he wouldn't let go. Because when you grasp what you're not supposed to have, you're held in bondage. You see how I did that little preacher turn right there? A little. They send us to school to learn how to do that. Take a story, just turn that little preacher curl right at the end. Let me tell you another story. I was in Africa, some friends of mine, loose friends of mine were running a game, like an animal preserve thing, an animal farm, you know, taking care of animals and healing kind of animals. And I learned something. They often had to capture their own monkeys as well as monkeys from the wild. And the way they did this was they had a, a side of a cage, a solid wood side of a cage, and it had a hole in it. What they would do is they would put a banana on the other side of this wall. So and the, a monkey had to reach through the hole and grab the banana, but then he couldn't pull it back through. So he wouldn't let go stubbornly. He's now stuck with this, uh, basically a wall that's a bracelet. I mean, he's got his hand through the hole and he's holding the banana. They just simply bring the rest of the cage and attach it to the wall and catch the monkey because he's too stubborn to let go of what he shouldn't have. Uh-huh. See that little turn right there. Well, I want both of these images in your mind because I want to tell you and just review with you today the story of Jonah. This is what Jonah is going to tell us about, this, this image, this concept he's going to talk about. Jonah lived about 700 years before Jesus. Jonah lived at a time when the Assyrian Empire uh, was dominant and Nineveh was its capital city. Now, the Assyrians had been vicious to the Israelites. They were violent and they were bloody and they were vile and they were cruel and their religion was all occult and idolatrous and everything that, a, that the Jewish people would abhor and they were dominating Israel. And Jonah, of course, hated them like most all in Israel did. But one day God came to Jonah, who was a prophet, and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them and bring them to repentance. And Jonah who hated the Assyrians, Jonah, who did not want to have anything, certainly didn't want to see Nineveh repent, went the opposite direction. If you look at a map maybe in your Bible, Nineveh's over there north of where Israel is. Jonah head out for what the Bible calls Tarshish. That's actually a city in Spain. So he's going as far west as he knows to go at that time. In fact, given what they understood of the Roman Empire at the time, he was going to the end of the world in the opposite direction. And the Bible says he tried to run from God. I said he was a prophet. I didn't say he was smart, okay? Now, don't look at me like that. I've tried to run from God. Come on. How many of you have tried to run from God, which is the dumbest thing you can ever try to do, right? Well, it does not go well for Jonah. Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is the port city. He gets on a boat. He goes out in the Mediterranean. He's heading west towards Spain. But the Lord, the Bible says, sends a storm. And almost sinks this boat. The sailors on the boat, being the kind of religion they were, they said, who has angered his God so that this storm happens? Jonah said, I've angered my God. They go, well, we don't want to kill you, but man, we got to do something. Finally, Jonah says, throw me off the boat. And, and so they finally, they try not to do it. They try to think of other solutions. Finally, they take Jonah and they throw him into the sea. And you know the story, a whale comes and swallows him. 
Let me just pause right here, even though it's not my main point, and say that this is not that crazy of a story. We actually have historical accounts of whales swallowing human beings and them surviving because a whale is a mammal. It has to breathe at the surface. That's why they come up and do all those dramatic things. So they're taking air into their lungs, and if you're inside it, you can breathe. So we actually have documented accounts of people surviving this. Now, it doesn't look like the book I had when I was about five years old of Jonah on the tongue of that whale, a little campfire going and some weenies, you know. (laughs) Roasting his little weenies there on the, on the campfire, and the whale's got smoke coming out his nose, like something out of Pinocchio. But I mean, he survived. Well, in the middle of this moment, Jonah repents, which shows he was getting wiser. If you are at sea, survive a storm, people throw you off a boat into the water, and a whale swallows you, that's a good moment to repent. So Jonah repents, and in Jonah chapter 2, we've got his entire psalm of repentance. Now, obviously, he wrote this down later. There was no paper. There was no printer in that whale. You know what I'm talking about. It wasn't like he wrote it down right there. But he did say it. And all of what he said comes down to Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. And this is what I want to build out for the rest of our time together, build out of. And I'm, I'm so old school that I memorized this back when I was in college Uh, And so I'm using the 1984 version of the NIV. That's how I could, that's what I memorized it. I know a little bit of Hebrew. It's also very, very close to the Hebrew. Uh, But if you're using some communist version of the Bible, it's fine. Go right on with it. (laughs) Jonah 2 and verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I gotta read that again. Listen now, this is, this is almost exactly what the Hebrew says. And you can see it, even in the version you might be using, you can see how those words are, are close to that, that meaning. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Some translations say forsake their own mercy. Some translations say forfeit kindness, beauty, love. But we're gonna stick with the word grace. Even though it's a New Testament word, it's also used in the Old Covenant. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So Jonah repents, recognizing, and we'll come back to this in a minute, recognizing that he has engaged in idolatry and this has caused him to miss the grace of God. We'll come back to that. He repents. The whale spits him out on the land. He goes to Nineveh. 500 miles, by the way, 500-mile journey has a lot to think about. Nineveh's got 120,000 people in it. Jonah takes three days to preach to them. And believe it or not, this vile, pagan, nasty people repents. The whole city converts. God doesn't destroy the city. Jonah is not happy about any of it. Jonah is furious In fact, he's so angry, he stomps up to a city, I'm sorry, to a hill above the city of Nineveh and sits there to watch what's going to go on. Let's just picture Jonah up there on the top of that scaffolding over there. We're going to leave him there for a minute, okay? Jonah's up there. He's mad. He's fuming. He's watching Nineveh. We'll come back to him. Let's talk about what an idol is for us. 
Because most of us, I'm sure none of us have an actual physical idol in our home. We don't have a statue of some God that we go home and sacrifice to. We don't have a statue or some image of a God that we go home and, you know, give cookies to and bow down and worship and all that kind of thing. I mention food more in my sermons the more it gets to lunch because I can't eat until I'm done with the last service. So I just want you to know you'll be hearing some references to Oreos. That's what I'm trying to tell you. What is an idol? An idol is what we put our trust in apart from God. An idol is what defines or determines our life other than God's ways and his will. That's what an idol is. An idol is something you put your confidence in apart from God. It can be anything. An idol can be money. It can be power. It can be politics. We're certainly seeing that in our generation, aren't we? An idol can be your body. You can be preoccupied with your body to the extent that it becomes an idol to you. Success, uh, fame, reputation, material things. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Most of the things that can become idols in our lives are actually good things that become too large a priority in our lives. I'm crazy about my wife, Beverly, who's sitting down here, but she can become an idol in my life and become outsized and, and replace the ways and the will of God in my life. You, you've seen relationships like that. Maybe you've even been in them like that. And so uh, things can be, I mean, thank God for food. We can make food an idol. It's not automatically an idol. I think for those of us who live in the South, there's a built-in idolatry of food, just a little bit that God ignores. Uh, just wanted to, but that's bad doctrine. Don't tell Brett I said that. But, but you know that people make idols of food. They make idols of drink. They make idols of white powder. They pull up their nose. Uh, everything, cars, success, whatever. Idol, an idol is anything that we allow to be outsized in our lives beyond the ways and the will of God. Now, I want to say very clearly to you today that I didn't come here to browbeat you and condemn you in the flesh because I'm not about primarily the first half of this sentence in Jonah 2.8. Those who cling to worthless idols. That tells us what we need to know right there almost, that we don't want to cling to worthless idols. It's the second half I want to emphasize today. It's the second half that says, if you cling to worthless idols, you forfeit the grace that could be yours. That means there's greater grace. Come on now. That means there's greater grace. You're in a relationship you shouldn't be in. It's become an idol to you. The sadness is, yes, you're messing up your life. The good news is there's a greater grace for relationships in your life than you're walking in. You're try, you've made your money an idol or material things an idol, and, and you're trying to manage it and become all showy and successful or whatever you're doing to make it an idol. It's got too much of your heart. It's got too much of your priorities. Yeah, you're going to mess up your life with that idol. I'll show you a little bit about that here in just a minute. But, but the exciting thing is there's greater grace than you're walking in for your money and your finances. Greater grace. There's greater grace. There's always greater grace. So the, the, the good news of the gospel today is not just that we human beings can sometimes have idols in our lives. The good news of the gospel is those idols need to be pulled down in our lives because there's greater grace for us to walk in. That's good news. That's exciting. 
I mean, I already know I've got some idols in my life. I already know because I've walked this for a while. I've had to pull down idols repeatedly in our lives. It often it doesn't just happen once. You have to continue to battle it. And every single time on the other side, I find greater grace, greater grace. Well, let's just talk for a moment. Let's go back and pick up Jonah, who's sitting up on the top of that scaffolding. He's furious. Let's just, let's just remember, see, we often stop when the whale spits him out and he goes and preaches at Nineveh. But let's remember that there's a Jonah chapter 4. And in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah goes up on the hill. It's hot. It's scorching, the Bible says. So he builds himself a little, a little shed and he sits there and looks down on the city angry. And God shows up. And I think God's picking on Jonah just a little bit. He's teasing him a little bit. He goes, Jonah... Are you angry? And Jonah says, Yeah, I'm angry. I'm so angry I could die. I told, watch what he says. I told you this would happen. Like he's giving God unknown information, right? I told you this would happen. You're a merciful God. You're a forgiving God. You're filled with loving kindness. I knew you would forgive these nasty suckers. You did. This is what I told you would happen. I'm so mad I could die. Jonah has made an idol of his anger and his hate. He's made an idol of his anger and his hate. So the Lord's not letting him go. It's hot. The Lord causes a plant to rise up immediately and spread out some leaves over Jonah and provide some shade. The Bible says that Jonah liked that plant. And then because the Lord's messing with him, the Lord sent a worm to eat the plant and kill it. The Lord sent a worm to eat the plant and kill it. And then God said, Jonah... You angry about that plant? Yeah, I'm so angry I could die. He just won't get off of it. He's just angry, so angry he could die. And God says, Jonah, you care about this little plant. It was here for a short time. You didn't make it. You didn't create it. But you don't want me to love and have compassion towards the 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their left hand from their right hand. And right there, you understand something. Jonah has forfeited the grace that could have been his. He was a prophet. What are prophets supposed to do? They're supposed to speak and flow in the heart of God. But God is saying to him, you don't have my heart, Jonah. My heart is for these people that they repent. I got to care about those 120,000. I got to care about those people. But you're so angry, you have moved yourself out of the purposes and the heart and the compassion of God. Your idolatry of anger and hate has moved you out of flowing in my heart and my purposes. And I got to tell you, when I read Jonah chapter 4, I think of me. I grew up in the home of a, of a military man, a high-ranking officer who was a good man, but he was a pretty a harsh father, for, at least in our early days. Later on, we did great. But when I was a guy in high school playing sports, my coaches figured out that I had this anger towards my father, and they encouraged me to play to it, to, to summon it, to let the anger and rage you know, make me more violent and, and aggressive on the football field. So my anger, my hatred, my anger towards my father, it, my coaches actually used it like I was summoning a spirit. Bring up that anger, Stephen. Think about, think about what you're mad about. Bring that up and, and hit those guys. as though, Picture your father, one guy said. Picture your father across the line. Well... I mean, it's obviously an ungodly way to coach. <laughs> but, but what's more important is they built a help, built, help, it was my fault, but they helped build a stronghold in my life. Because I may have played a little bit better football, but I mean, it didn't help me in my marriage later in life to have a stronghold of anger in my life. It didn't make me a better father 
didn't make me a better leader. I mean, I can, you know, God can get up and preach the gospel, but he's got a, a stronghold of anger in his life. That anger seeps through and repels people. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you've, you've had people ask you to pass the salt, but there's something leaking out of them that's kind of unclean. It's like, ugh. You know, they ask you to pass the salt, but I'm repelled by something. It's a stronghold in their life that's just leaking every time they open their mouths. That was me. And finally, quite frankly, some leaders in every nation late in my life uh, helped me get over that. So now I'm the sweet and adorable guy that you see before you now. <laughs> not really, not really. But what's, what's, the point, what's the point here? The point is that idols can be anything. Idols can be my anger, Jonah's anger. Idols can be bitterness. I don't mean to be harsh. You can build an idol around your woundedness, refuse to get healed, and just use this as an excuse all your life. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just listing everything I can get my hands on. I mean, you know, you can make an idol out of everything. Let me just leave it at that, everything. Because once I start making lists, then people think, well, you, who told you? You know, it's kind of how. I want to I continue negative for just a moment and show you that it's not just that we're forfeiting the greater grace, the forfeiting the grace that could be ours, which I want. See, I'm, once I realized, somebody showed me, that I was forfeiting the greater grace for my life. I was using anger to, be, to, to dominate people and, and to try to control and even, even win people as a force of leadership. But there was a greater grace. There was a greater way to lead. There was a greater way to impact people that as long as I made an idol out of my anger, I was never going to find. And what happens is not just that you're foregoing the greater grace, but that the enemy will use that idol to destroy the rest of your life. Let me, give you a, let me give you a verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. You've read this before, but it tells us what happens when we don't... Let's stay on the subject of anger. It's not my topic this morning, but let's just use it as an example since Jonah and I brought it up with our examples. Uh, it's talking about anger. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That word foothold, which may in your Bible be translated stronghold, it's topos, T-O-P-O-S in Greek, and it means strategic territory. It means, a, it means a hold from which you can control. In military terms, it's like you put tanks up on a hill and they can control the valley down below. Let me show you another way. Garrison, come up here for a moment, please. Now, Garrison's younger than I am, probably can whoop me. Uh, I got a few pounds on him. But if you guys, some of you are police, some of you have been in the military, some of you do martial arts. Uh, in those, all of those realms, uh, they use a strategic hold. He'll, he'll never forget this one. And what they do is, <laughs> let's get a picture. <laughs> what they do is, they grab a guy by the back of his pants. You've seen policemen so on do that. Now, now Garrison, you know, I mean, he probably can fight his way free if he wants to, but I pretty much can control him with just that one hold. I don't have to possess him to control him. I just need a strong hold. Uh, see that preacher thing I did, that little curly, right? Thank you. So what, the, thank you, Gears. So what, what the devil does is, the Bible makes it very clear, if you don't repent of an idol in your life, in this case, anger out of Ephesians 4, then what happens is that the devil gets a hold on your life in that area. 
And because he's come to kill, steal, and destroy, he's going to move out into other areas of your life and try to destroy you. You've had friends or you've seen in your own life where a person, maybe they're great looking and wealthy and popular and all the things that maybe everybody thinks are positive, uh, but they've got one idol, one area of idolatry in their lives and you see it. And maybe you even think to yourself, well, this is one area that they're messed up and got an idol, but maybe they'll be okay. And within months, their whole life's being destroyed. Why? Because the devil got a hold. He got a hold, a strategic hold on them. He doesn't get that hold just to stand there and take pictures like we just humorously did. He gets that hold to destroy you. So that one area of idolatry now expands into other areas of your life. You've seen it. You've seen a person who just drinks a little bit too much. I'm not picking on alcohol. I'm just using it as an example. Drinks a little bit too much. Before long, their whole life is trashed. Why? Because that stronghold has moved out and tainted everything in their life. We could go on and on, a stronghold of bitterness, stronghold of other things, because the enemy wants to destroy. The enemy wants to kill. The enemy wants to take us out. But we can walk in a greater grace. And again, we don't talk much about idols because we, we, we tend to relate more to things we can see. None of you probably are worshiping idols you can see unless it's your car or your clothes or something. But, but we have idols in our lives and we're forfeiting the grace that could be ours and setting ourselves up for a demonic attachment that can decimate our lives. Now, I'm going to stop being negative. The positive is in all of those areas, there's greater grace. There's greater grace. You did something nuts with your money and made it an idol because you were afraid that if you didn't, things would go crazy. What you didn't know was God had greater grace. So you're in the way of the greater thing God wants to do because you're doing something nuts with your money and making it an idol. Do you see how it works? We're in our own way. We're in God's way. And we're also setting ourselves up for a demonic attachment. Let me tell you another reason that, that I'm thrilled that God is talking to us about this theme this morning. In, in, in one, other than the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection, the, the, the theme in Scripture that really means uh, perhaps the most is, is in second place is the idea of destiny. I love the idea that we're made for a purpose. I love the idea that God doesn't make junk, that every one of us has a way chosen for us, that our calling as Christians is to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us that there's a purpose, that there's a destined way, that even our sufferings are destined, we're told in the New Testament, and they work a purpose in our lives that God ordains. I love that idea. But I'll tell you that idols in our lives work against destiny being fulfilled. Let me tell you how I see this. In fact, let me read one of my favorite quotes from Julius Caesar. Uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. There is a tide in the affairs of men. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's be modern about this. There's a tide in the affairs of men and women, which taken at the flood, taken when it's high and at flood, leads on to fortune, which is his word for destiny, Shakespeare's word for destiny. Omitted, if you don't catch that wave, so to speak, if you don't catch that tide, all of their life is bound up in shallows and in miseries. Now, let me tell you something. I was in Peru just last week uh, preaching and speaking down there and doing some other things. And uh, the guy who picked me up was a fine young man, um, and he was a surfer. 
Apparently, the waves are really great in Peru, and so there are a lot of demonically influenced people who surf. I think that this is evil, and they all need deliverance. But okay, I'm going to let it go for the moment. Not getting me on a surfboard. This guy was apparently like almost a professional surfer, but he told me about something that happened one day. He said he'd been out in the water uh, waiting for uh, the, the right wave. He then saw in the distance that the right wave was coming. It was going to be huge. It was going to be massive. It was going to carry him powerfully to the shore where he would be applauded and celebrated. He said all this went in his mind. I think he was in a competition, but he didn't get in details about that. The problem was somehow, and I don't know much about surfing, but somehow he had turned his foot, tipped the board, so he was, in surfer terminology, he was planted. I don't, he wasn't anchored to the bottom of the ocean, but he wasn't going to be able to move when that wave came. He'd been waiting for it for hours. Finally it came, but he was rooted, planted, nailed down, so to speak, in the wrong way. When the wave came, the perfect wave, the wave that a surfer dreams of, it didn't move him forward. It crushed him. Because when you're planted and the wave of destiny comes, it doesn't move you forward. You can't move. If you've got your arm up a candy machine, you aren't going anywhere, Right? Destiny passes you by. Well, I'm hungry to see us fulfill our destiny. I'm hungry to see us take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. I'm hungry to see us all walk in the purposes of God. But you can't do that if you're weighed down with idols. You can't do that if you've got something that's defining your life other than will of God. If you're walking in the ways of God and uh, the wave of destiny, I'm making up word language now, the wave, there's no wave of destiny in the Bible, but I like the way it sounds. The wave (laughs) of destiny comes, I'm being a preacher for a moment, leave me alone. The wave of destiny comes, you can't be anchored with an idol. You can't be carrying some gold image around. You can't have your hand inside of that candy machine. You can't be weighed down by the burden of something that's not yours. You can't be a monkey with your hand grabbing something you won't let go of. You won't go where you're supposed to go. You got to be ready to flow with what God is trying to do with you. It's essential for us. It's essential for us. That's what I'm excited about. I didn't didn't come to teach this to to say, bad, you got idols. We all got various times in our lives have various idols. But let's, let's declare war on them. Let's pull them down. Let's get out of stuff we're not supposed to be into. Let's get them back in the right priority. Most of the stuff that may be an idol in your life, it's not supposed to leave your life. It's probably a good thing, like food, like spouses, but it's just not meant to be your God. And let me add, I think I've got just another minute. Let me add one more thing I want to add here. I sense that I should for this service. This whole theme of taking hold of the greater grace is found in a verse I want to read to you. Uh, just, just jot it down. We don't have time to actually turn there and develop it in all of its original purposes. Acts 13, 19. The writer of Acts, which is Luke, says this. Well, he's actually quoting. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. Now, again, I'm not trying to be all technical with the language here. Let me just tell you a little bit of insight uh, from, from the original language. That word refreshing is troublesome. We use it like uh, being sprayed with cold water on a hot day, that kind of refreshing. It's actually a legal term. You know what it means? It means that times of restoration of what has been lost 
Repent that what has been lost may be restored to you. In fact, if you'll go look later at your, in your Bible at Acts 3 and verse 19, you'll actually see the word restored used in the very, like the next sentence. There's a restoration that the Messiah is doing. The whole context here is repent so that restoration can happen. Devastation may have happened in your life because of the idols that we're trying to pull down today. You may already recognize some damage. You may already recognize what that uh, wrong relationship did, and you've, you've, you now recognize there's a greater grace. But hear me, if we'll repent, if we'll pull these things down, God is there to grant a restoration of what has been lost so that we can walk in the greater grace he has intended for us. Hallelujah. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, baby. The gospel of Jesus. So now with all those promises hanging over us, with all those promises, who doesn't want to repent? Who doesn't want to pull down the idols? Let's do it right now. Just bow your heads with me. I'm not going to ask anybody to come to the front or raise a hand. We wouldn't do anything to embarrass you. But let me just walk us through this. Father, in the name of Jesus, this, this, this people in this church we, are, we say to you, we are hungry to walk in your ways. We are hungry to walk in your will. We, we, we look out at the news of today. We want to make a difference. We want to move with your spirit and be the healing agents we're called to be, just like we prayed for our sister church down in Midland, Odessa. But Lord God, in some cases, and in, maybe in some parts of our life, we've got idols. We've got things we put confidence in apart from you. We've got things that define our lives apart from the ways and the will of God. Father, you've shown a light on it now. And so grant us a spirit of repentance now. We pull it down. We say no more. We ask for it to be in the right perspective in our lives, the right priority. We ask that we'll make a commitment right now to get out of things we're embroiled in that we shouldn't be. And we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that immediately the stronghold of the evil one will be broken in our lives. We pray for the people in this room, those who listen later to this, uh, somehow di digitally, do a mighty work. They're just driving down the street in their car, listening to this, to this as a podcast. Break the stronghold of the enemy. And Father God, move us into that greater grace and restore what's been lost. This isn't a downer message. This is a message of liberation in Jesus Christ. That's what we take hold of now. And everyone together said, amen. Love you.